Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today, I'm joined by Charles Dunst. He's the Deputy Director of Research at the Asia Group, and he's an adjunct fellow with CSIS's Southeast Asia program, and he's a contributing editor of American Purpose. He's also the author of a really interesting new book entitled Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman. It's been endorsed by serious thinkers like Senator Chris Coons and retired General H.R. McMaster. Prior to his current work, Charles served as a foreign correspondent for outlets like the New York Times, the Atlantic, the L.A. Times, and the Spectator in places like Cambodia, Myanmar, Romania, Vietnam, Israel, the Palestinian territories, Andorra, that sounds super interesting, the UAE, and Hungary. In defeating the dictators, Charles argues that democracies must get their own houses in order and use good governance to combat rising autocracy. By taking in a good governance approach, he argues that we can become the world's model once again and fend off the rise of would-be autocrats at home by better satisfying the public's demands, by delivering on democracy, if you will. The book lays out a framework of eight specific steps that democracies can take towards improving good governance like meritocracy, accountability, trust, and immigration. We'll talk about those in the conversation. So I'm podcasting Charles today to talk about this new book, Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman, the role of good governance in preventing the erosion of democracy and the combating the rise of autocracy and how this incorporates into the conversation about great power competition with states led by the Chinese Communist Party or Vladimir Putin's murderous regime in Russia. Charles, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So why did you write the book, Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman? Sure. I honestly came to writing the book through a little bit of an odd background in the sense that I was a journalist, then I was a think tanker and a grad student. And I kind of think uh, when everyone was asking, well, what's what's your first book going to be? It was, well, yeah, something on Southeast Asia, whatever, we'll see. And what ended up happening was basically kind of went back and forth, back and forth with, with an agent, with an agent. I'd actually written a proposal on Vietnam that nobody wanted. And we kind of ended up with Hotter and Stout and this British publisher reached out to my agent who had previously been an editor. So he kind of knew both sides of the operation. And they said to him, well, we want something on autocracy. We don't know what it's going to be. We want a younger voice, someone who can write it really fast and honestly for not a lot of money. And I said, you know, well, I can do that. And kind of, I think the framing of the book came out of, honestly, me spending a lot of time in places like Singapore, um, places, and then living in Hungary and living in Cambodia, which are a variety, kind of different, uh, very much different types of, of countries that either are hardened autocracies or kind of veer in that direction. And in Hungary, it was a clear example of, well, here's what happens when enough people actually want an illiberal leader and that democracy declines. Whereas Singapore is obviously the example of a 
very high-functioning, highly effective autocracy that essentially quells demands for democratic freedoms. And Cambodia is neither of those. Cambodia is a hardened kind of kleptocracy where, sure, people might want democracy, but there's no real ability to bring it about. So I really wrote the book to think, well, here are these three types of autocracies. What's the most problematic one today? And to me, I think the rise of countries like Singapore, of countries like China, and when people around the developing world say, we want to be like that, rather than like the United States, or rather than like Germany or South Korea, kind of the the established democracies, that's a real big challenge. And I wanted to write a book that was focused on, well, how do we fix the problem? How do we make democracy look more attractive in an era where more and more people seem to be calling for something different? And I, I felt like many of the autocracy books that are out there are kind of lamenting the problem. It's, well, here's what's gone wrong. Here's why democracy in America is dying. And there wasn't so much on, on how to fix it. So that's really why I sat down to kind of frame a book in this way. Well, that's why I liked the book, because I don't like admiring problems. I like kind of suggesting solutions. So I particularly like that about your book, Charles. So let's make the case as to why democracy is better than autocracy. I worry that autocracy can be seductively attractive. And talk a little bit about what does an authoritarian world-led world look like? Why is that bad? I can make the case as to why I think it's super bad. What are the stakes in this conversation? Sure. I mean, something I tried to do very explicitly in the book was actually explain to kind of an, an, an ordinary reader who's not involved in the think tank world or the policy world, well, why does it matter if China, Singapore, Saudi Arabia, why, why does it matter if they're running the world? And I think the basic example is, well, we'll come second in that if the, wor- if the world's best innovation and technology and all that flows through Beijing and Riyadh and Moscow, it means that the United States, Europe, Southeast Asia, whatever, are getting it second. And if you live in a democracy, that's quite problematic and quite troubling. And we're seeing it now, obviously, where the the Europeans have for so long been reliant on Russian energy, came to realize that was a mistake, and are now working very hard to make sure they don't replicate that Russian reliance with future reliance on China for electric vehicle technology. And I think just in the practical sense here, well, an authoritarian-led world is bad because for an ordinary people, it means it might be harder for you to get the semiconductors we need for phones. It might be harder for you to get electric vehicle batteries. It might be harder for you to get critical minerals. All of these things that are critical to actually the day-to-day lives of ordinary Americans, Brits, Germans, whatever, even if they don't necessarily think about it. And of course, on the kind of broad grand strategy level, there's this notion that if, which I think is right, if the authoritarians run the world, I think you normalize much repression internally because, of course, the Chinas of the world say, well, we're not going to interfere. It's non-interference. Don't talk about my, my domestic policy. We won't talk about yours. Whereas, of course, I mean, what people, reasonable people can debate how much the United States should you know, push Vietnam on human rights issues. But we do push and we do raise it. And I would argue that's a good thing. And that's a good reason to kind of have democracies in a leadership role. And of course, the last bit, I would argue, is if you have more powerful Chinas and Russias and Saudi Arabias kind of running the world, you do normalize things like China moving to take territory of Bhutan. You normalize things like Russia, of course, having seized Crimea and now invading you. Ukraine, and you normalize things like the Saudi with the Saudi war in Yemen, all of these things that in ideally in kind of a proper rules-based order where democracies are actually living up to, to our values and living up to our promises, those things are not happening, or if they are happening, they're kind of considered they're considered outside of the norms and things to be kind of slapped down with sanctions and, and, and all that. So it is both, I think, practical for the ordinary person and problematic on a grand strategy level. Good. Okay. What role is China playing and what about Russia? 
I think they're fundamentally different. And I think I probably agree with the Biden administration's framing on this, where China is a long-term competitor. And the only power at the time, at the moment that could displace the United States as kind of the main shaper of international order in that China is certainly trying to do that by diluting institutions like ASEAN, by convening the, the Arab leaders in Riyadh, all of these things to kind of push back on, you know, what orders, regional orders that have generally been a bit more, a bit more U.S. friendly or at least kind of open to American engagement. And certainly I think Beijing would very much like it if the if roads of innovation on all of that flowed through China rather than through the United States. I think China would much prefer to set the agenda and the rules of the road on new technologies uh, at institutions like the United Nations. And I think this is this is not China necessarily trying to tear down an order and rebuild it, but kind of refashion the existing order in a Beijing-friendly manner. On the other hand, Russia doesn't have the power, the know-how, or even really the, the goal to do that. I think Russia is very much governed, honestly, just by one man who is pretty focused on a few a few select goals, one of which is Ukraine. And the result has been to disrupt energy markets. It's to cause a ton of unnecessary deaths in Ukraine. So they're fundamentally different to me, where China is more so a challenge, a long-term challenge of international order and kind of the state of, of global governance. Whereas Russia, for, for lack of a better phrase, is kind of a, a shorter-term annoyance and not necessarily, I think, a threat to the United States, but definitely a threat to to, to the safety and prosperity of Europe, I mean, I, to say the least. So I think they're very different, and I would put, along with kind of the China uh, refashioning international order, you can probably loop in to some extent Saudi Arabia there. Uh, Singapore is certainly fence-sitting, but maybe in the longer term less so. Um, but I think definitely Saudi Arabia for sure is, is leaning towards that, that Chinese model a little bit. Let's talk about good governance. You talk about sort of eight dimensions of this. Talk about why that's important and what are those dimensions. Sure. I mean, the the argument of the entire book is that it's all about getting our own homes in order, basically with the notion that, well, if we can't protect democracy where it already exists, or if democracy can't thrive where it already exists, you're going to result in pe more people like Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, kind of gaining power legitimately through free, and free, free, through free and fair elections and then doing away with those liberal checks and balances and turning these systems into a liberal democracies, which in my view will eventually likely give way to autocracy. And secondarily, if democracies perform better, if we are leading the world even more so in innovation, in good governance, and the social safety and all these things, it makes it more likely that people around the world look and say, well, we want to be like the United States. It makes it more likely that the intelligentsias of, of Hanoi or uh, of Hanoi or Phnom Penh think, well, maybe we should be more like Europe and more like North America and more like South Korea rather than trying to model Singapore or China. So the goal of the book with these eight specific chapters is to advance solutions for kind of eight broad principles that I think are critical to good governance at the moment. I opened up with meritocracy, both in kind of the education system and then in government staffing, with the argument that America's kind of, and many Western democracies and non-Western democracies as well, have fallen behind here by essentially not accounting for unequal starting points. And this is not equality of outcomes, of course, but it is trying to guarantee to some extent equality of opportunity. And because I think when there's this notion of, well, this feeling that the, the same people 
people, the same people and their kids get all the good jobs, go to all the good schools, and it's not so much meritocratic, it's going to weaken trust in the system. Uh, secondarily, I looked at accountability and this notion that powerful people in politics and business, there's this sentiment that they just kind of get away with everything and that there are two sets of rules, one for the powerful and one for everyone else. And it's not hard for me to understand or not hard to, to see how that will undermine kind of the basis of democracy. Democracies are based on the rule of law for everyone and equality of the law for everyone. And if there is this notion of, well, if you're rich enough or powerful enough, you kind of get away with everything, it serves to weaken public trust in democracy, which is my third item, which is trust in democracy, Think trust in government, thinking about how, well, what do democracies need to do to win back the trust of their people? Pointing out that many autocracies like Vietnam, like Singapore, like China, like Saudi Arabia, enjoy very high levels of public trust and that trust is no longer this privilege of, of democracy, which I think is very different from previous eras where, of course, the Soviet Union, many of these really hardened autocracies kind of had no trust in government. They just repressed people to keep themselves in power, whereas that's not the case today. In many of these high-performing autocracies, there is a fair bit of performance legitimacy. And I think democracies need to take a whole host of steps uh, to actually improve trust in government. The fourth chapter I looked at was long-term thinking, arguing that democratic governments are increasingly kind of consumed by the, ne the next election. And there's a little bit of a lack of political bravery to think about things beyond two or four years, depending, uh, depending what office you hold. Uh, and that the example there, the positive example, is the private sector in much of the West has long been much better at making long-term plans than short-term plans. I think the example in the book is many of Amazon's most profitable products or Apple's most profitable products were actually initially short-term loss makers. But there was this notion of focusing on the long-term, and I think democracies need to do a better, better job of that on a governance level. Uh, I then looked at the social safety net and really focused a lot on Denmark, because I know we talk about both conservatives and, and liberals talk about Denmark as having one of the best social safety nets, one of being one of the most functional countries in the world. And that's true enough. But even Denmark's social safety net is not really equipped for the gig economy right now, uh, kind of leaving behind this 20 to 25 percent of the population that makes their living either by driving an Uber or by owning a restaurant or a coffee stand or something and just are not really being accounted for. And as more and more people fall into that gig economy, there's obviously an increased need to account for them. I then looked at human capital and I think much of what or many of what much of what the Biden administration has done here has been positive in terms of the CHIPS Act, in terms of the Inflation Reduction Act, all these things to actually say, well, these are critical technologies or critical items that we need to be better at producing. We need to train people to do it. We need to prioritize education in these fields. And I looked kind of at this notion of, well, more democracies need to do more of that with the argument that, well, India, India is outspent on human capital by Russia, which I think is kind of inconceivable to think about. And there are, of course, many headwinds to people getting a PhD in quantum mechanics or something, because it's it's really, you know, you, you are sacrificing some kind of key money-making years of your life to do these things. That's not a reasonable approach. And it's kind of indicative to me that I think our governments have over the last 10, 15, 20 years, not necessarily taken human capital so seriously. And the seventh chapter I looked at was on infrastructure, thinking about both literal roads and digital ones and thinking about, well, of course, American infrastructure is not great compared to the rest of the developed world, to put, to put it lightly. So there is a need to actually build bridges and roads and tunnels and all these things. But there's also a need to think about, well, the digital roads of the future of, well, it's not profitable for many companies to lay high-speed infrastructure cables in rural parts of the United States because there aren't enough users to pay into it. So the governments need to think about, well, should we give subsidies? Should we give tax breaks? How do we encourage more, more, in more uh, internet 
internet cables to be built because, of course, the more people that are on the internet, the more participation in e-commerce there is, all this innovation that flows from that. And finally, and this is the, the eighth and final chapter, I've gotten maybe the most media questions on it, is looking at immigration and thinking about from a practical perspective. Most democracies, definitely most advanced democracies, are not having enough children to maintain a healthy demographic balance. The the rate that demographers say is needed is 2.1 children per woman, and we're not even close. I mean, the United States is somewhere around 1.5, 1.6, even though one countries with better social safety nets like Denmark are 1.7 maybe. South Korea is the worst in the world at 0.78. And there is a practical argument to saying, well, to prevent our populations from being mostly old and thus having to spend most of our tax dollars on social care for these people or elderly care, you need to actually have more immigrants. And you bring in more immigrants who are going to work hard, who all statistics show in the United States, the United Kingdom, pay more into the system than they take out. And that's true of both economic immigrants and refugees. And this is not to say we should have open borders. Of, of course not. But it's thinking about strategic ways to say, well, how can we bring in many of these high-skilled people from places like India that would love to work in the United States long term? Because the current system with the H-1B visa process does not, does not work, to say the least. And that's the practical argument for immigration. And I think there is a little bit of an ethical values-based argument as well of saying every time someone picks up from Russia or China and says, I want to move to the United States, I'm going to move to Europe, I'm going to move to South Korea, whatever, it's a testament to all democracies can offer and all that autocracies do not. And the data bears it out that even despite all of America's troubles, when you talk to potential migrants around the world, their number one preferred destination remains the United States, and the other top ones are all democracies. So I think that is a major thing we have going for us. But taken together, I think that the, the, that swath of reforms or that swath of suggestions could really set democracies up in, I think, a very positive way moving forward. I love that. I love the fact that the statistic is that when people want to migrate, they want to migrate to democracies. I think it speaks volumes. People are voting with their feet. Well, look, I love the book, Charles, and I think it's great. The book is called Defeating the Dictators, and it's how democracy can prevail in the age of the strongman by Charles Dunst. So Charles, this has been great. I really appreciate you coming on today to talk to us. I encourage people to go out and read the book. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you all will go out and get it. Thanks, Charles. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 